You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 110. Hey there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction and an update on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Today I'm bringing you the first part of my story, Huntress. This piece was the third Metamore City story I wrote, way back in 2002. It first aired on the Metamore City podcast in episode 2, where it was read for me by the amazingly talented Leanne Mabry. What you're going to hear today is the audiobook version, which I'm reading myself. Sadly, I no longer have the original audio files for Leanne's performance. They were lost in a hard drive crash, and so were the backups. So I have to re-record the story for myself. On the bright side, I have a lot more experience now with voicing Morgan and my other female characters, so I can do them justice here much better than I would have back when I started podcasting. Without further ado, then... Here's part one of Huntress. Huntress. A tale of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Part one. The soft, gentle tones of an alarm clock roused me from the darkness with the suddenness of a gunshot. I can't quite call it sleep any more. There is no lazy drifting from one state of consciousness to another, no gradual shifting of perspectives. I never dream, at least not here, not in these times. There is only darkness and silence, like floating in a sea of black ink. In one moment all is still, calm, muted. And then my head breaks the surface, and the five senses come rushing back, flooding my mind with sight and sound, scent and taste and touch. Before I can check myself, I strike out at the clock's snooze button with a quick chop, putting enough force behind the blow to crush a man's windpipe. The clock, being made of stainless steel in the most rugged design I could find, simply shuts off, well accustomed to such abuse. For several minutes I simply lay there, willing my body's hair-trigger reflexes to relax. I remember the meditative exercises that were taught to me, and begin putting them into practice, slowly breathing in, out, one useless breath after another. I feel the tension in my limbs fade, then vanish entirely. Then, only then, do I rise from my bed and make my way with slow, deliberate steps over to the bathroom of my apartment. So begins another Friday night. Hello, weekend, darling. How I've missed you. I start running water into the extra-large tub, as hot as it gets, then splash some of it into my face to moisten my eyes. As the tub fills, I spread out the bath mat on the floor, lining up the edges with the grout between the tiles. I glance upward at the towels hanging on the bar and wince in disgust. One of them is at least two centimeters out of alignment with the others. 
I carefully fix the rogue towel, then go back into the other room to make the bed. By the time I come back, the tub is full of hot water, and a cloud of steam is hanging overhead. I disrobe, carefully fold my nightclothes and set them aside, and then slip into the bath, letting my head sink below the surface. I stay under for a long time, feeling the warmth work its way back into my body. When I can feel that heat deep inside my chest, at my very core, I rise to the surface again and reach for the washcloth and soap. My skin is still pale, like porcelain, but at least there is warmth in me again. And with that thought, a familiar pang awakens inside me, reminding me that my body must soon be filled with a very different sort of warmth. Once clean, I let the water drain out of the tub while I dry myself and get ready for another Friday night out. The hair comes first. Fortunately, mine is notably cooperative and needs relatively little help from me to dry into its usual silky black waves. Clothing is a tougher choice. Any given style will have varying degrees of success, depending on the venue. After standing in front of my open closet for a few minutes, I decide on the direct approach. A body-hugging black gown, with a low lace-up back and an uneven, tapered hem that drapes down over the left leg while exposing the right one almost completely. I match it with a pair of sheer pantyhose with a stylized black dragon snaking up the right leg. A leather choker with garnet accents, matching earrings, and eight-centimeter black pumps complete the ensemble. Now comes the hard part. Sitting down on the edge of the bed, the necessary implements in hand, I close my eyes and take a few long, deep breaths. It's pointless, of course, but it does help me to steal my will for what comes next. Then, gritting my teeth, I open the compact and begin applying my makeup. I'll never get used to doing this carefully focusing on one small section of my face at a time, holding the mirror at strange angles so that my eyes never meet their own reflection. Once, early on in this new life, I made the mistake of catching my own gaze in the mirror. The sensation of it is hard to describe, like tumbling end over end into a bottomless pit while hearing my own thoughts reflected back at me a thousand times over. Between the gut-wrenching vertigo and the stark, blinding terror that followed fast on its heels, I quickly learned my lesson. The next day, this compact was the only mirror left in this apartment. I have to take a break every few minutes to calm my nerves, but eventually I get the makeup applied to my satisfaction. A light blush puts just a touch of color in my pale cheeks while dark mascara and violet eyeshadow provide a fitting match to my outfit. I put the compact away in one of the pockets of my coat, a glossy black duster made of crocodile hide that fits close to my upper arms, flares out near the wrists, and widens below the waist, billowing out behind me if I move at anything faster than a slow walk. After checking the pockets of the coat for a few other essential items, I head for the door. On the way out... I stop to straighten the tassels on the rug in the entry hall and adjust a picture frame that's hanging a few millimeters too low on one side. No matter what I do, it seems like it's always messy in here.
It's another typical Friday night at Station 53. The music thrums, deep, slow, and sensual, and blue, amber, and purple lights pulse and swirl before my eyes as I glide through the doors of the nightclub. The bouncer saw me coming from fifty meters away and held the door open for me, bypassing a waiting line three blocks long. Miss Drowling, he said, nodding to me. Hello, Toss, I replied, flashing a smile up at him. His blocky, brutish features crinkled up in an adorably bashful grin at the attention. The club is full, but not overly so. The entire building is circular in shape, with eight ring-shaped tiers of dining space descending down to a dance floor with four large whirlpools set in a square around its perimeter. A haze of carbon dioxide fog hangs over the floor, mostly filled with couples writhing and grinding to the steady, pounding beat while others frolic in and around the hot tubs, laughing and giggling when the pumps turn on and the water becomes a vortex around them. Somewhere against the wall of every other tier is a bar where beautiful young men and women in tight outfits will serve up every intoxicating beverage imaginable, including several that cater to more exotic appetites. But then, to me, some things just don't taste right out of a bottle. Everyone here is rich, powerful or beautiful. Often all three. The people get dull sometimes, but I like the atmosphere. I float down the steps to the second circle and over to the nearest bar. It's a two-drink minimum, and while they can't sell me what I really want, they have a number of more mundane concoctions that still interest me. Evening, Miss Drowling, says Daniel, the tow-headed young man behind the counter. What'll it be tonight? Red Dragon. I say, removing my coat and hanging it over a chair. I turn away from him and lean back against the bar, looking down at the crowd below. The smell of fresh sweat wafts up from the floor, tinged with an aura of excitement and lust. Daniel puts the drink at my elbow a minute later, and for a while I simply stand back and observe. The hunger inside me is growing, but the fruit juice and alcohol in the cocktail will abate it for a time. I hear the man coming from halfway across the club. He's a few centimeters taller than me, with stylish brown hair and clothes that wouldn't look out of place at any casual office, until you read the tags and realized how much they cost. He speaks to the barkeep for a moment, then leans up against the bar behind me as he waits for his drink. Looks lonely down there when you're by yourself, doesn't it? He says. I slide my eyes over to give him an appraising look. He's clean-shaven, with eyes of some light hue, grey, green, or blue, it's hard to tell in here, and a gently friendly demeanour. My eyes drift down to his neck, exposed where he has unbuttoned the collar of his cornflower blue shirt. He's not wearing a tie, handkerchief, or necklace of any kind. I wouldn't think that would be a problem for someone like you, I say, colouring my voice with mild amusement. He chuckles. Maybe you haven't seen the competition here. But then I would say the same thing about you, so maybe the masses just have no taste. He offers a hand. I'm Leo. Morgan, I say, taking it briefly and offering him a smile in return. Would you care to dance, Miss Morgan? He asks, bowing to me in a slightly overstated gesture of chivalry. Or are you here on other business? 
My smile twists into a smirk. Don't make offers you aren't prepared to keep, Leo. You aren't wearing red tonight. He is puzzled for a moment, until his eyes widen in sudden understanding. Ah. I see, he says, his hand going unconsciously to his neck. He maintains his composure well, but underneath that designer's shirt he just broke out in a cold sweat. I can smell his fear, a palpable, living thing that creeps up behind his eyes and into his chest, instincts countless millennia old telling him to run. The stimulation is electrifying, and my pupils dilate and my nostrils flare at the thought of the chase. I can feel the muscles in my arms and legs coiling like vipers, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. But this is the twenty-first century in Metamorph City, not the primeval wilderness. I rein in the hunter's impulse, forcing my body to stay where it is, just as he restrains the primitive instinct that tells him to flee. My apologies, Miss Morgan, he says, trying to bow again while simultaneously keeping his eyes on me and avoiding my own. Given what I see when I look in my own eyes, I can't blame him even though I've heard it's not quite the same for others as it is for me. I didn't realize. He looks up and down at my outfit. Though, in retrospect, perhaps I should have. It's all right, I say, my tone light in spite of the tension inside me. You can't always tell, you know, especially in dim light. He's starting to calm down a little bit, now that he's realized I'm not going to pounce on him. And especially with you drinking that, he says wryly, gesturing at my drink. I would have expected something darker. Well, it's true, I don't really need this, I say, taking a sip of the red dragon. But then you don't, either. I nod over at the drink that Daniel just put on the bar for him. It's turquoise blue and has an orange slice and a maraschino cherry in it, impaled on a little plastic sword. You're not going to try to tell me that's water, are you? He grins, perhaps a bit sheepishly. Good point. Collecting his drink, he slides a few bills over to Daniel and takes a sip. Nodding in approval, he raises it toward me in a casual toast. Well, good evening, Ms. Morgan. I hope you find what you're looking for. I raise my glass to him in return. You too. Just remember what your mother told you about talking to strangers. Another grin. I will. He leaves, and I turn my focus back to my surroundings. I can afford to bide my time. It's a natural law that the best place to wait for prey is at the watering hole. If they're here, they will come. They aren't here. After two hours, I leave Station 53, feeling disappointed and rather annoyed. There were precious few candidates on offer tonight, and none of them met my standards. I don't like poses and groupies, and my kind have them in spades. Older men looking for a new lease on life, disaffected youths who don't appreciate the lives they have, thrill-seekers who think it's all just a game. I have no patience for any of them, and that limits my choices rather a lot. I won't do it. I won't make someone else into what I am, no matter how much they want it. They don't understand what it would cost them, what the change can do to you. 
And yes, it's true, you are still essentially you after you change. You don't lose your soul, and you're not damned to the bowels of hell. You're not a demon. But now you have a whole new set of drives, urges, and abilities to contend with. There's a beast inside of you that you'll never be rid of. Not ever. And that changes you, whether you want it to or not. Some people are strong enough to stay true to themselves in spite of it all. Many aren't. I won't have that on my conscience. I won't risk making someone else into a murderer. Contrary to what some believe, those who choose to share with us need not be changed or die. In spite of our predatory instincts, every one of my kind knows that the beast can be controlled, that we can feed and be sated without provoking the change and without causing lasting harm. This is the way it must be, if they are to continue to tolerate us living alongside them. And indeed, this rule is enforced all through the hierarchy, by order of the queen herself. Those who disregard it, gorging themselves on the flock of humanity and leaving bodies in their wake, are quickly dispatched, either by the queen's own agents or by others. No tears are shed for them. Still, merely avoiding lasting harm is a low standard to set for oneself. With our powers of persuasion, we can compel almost anyone to share, and either make them forget it afterwards, or convince them that it's what they wanted. I won't stoop to that. I try to choose people who aren't interested in changing, but choose to share out of their own free will, those who understand the risks and offer themselves anyway. Sharing is a powerful, intense act, and it can be greatly enjoyable and fulfilling for both parties, when it is practiced responsibly and with restraint. Sadly, that's a hard standard to live up to, and most of my kind would rather not bother. It's difficult to stand on principle when the beast inside you is demanding to be fed. Difficult, but not impossible. I am beast, but I am also woman. I will not let myself forget that. I drift around the city to a few other clubs, looking for anyone who might meet my exacting standards for a sharing partner. Some of them are gothic establishments, where the posers and wannabes swarm thick as flies on a carcass, wearing bright red scarves and black t-shirts emblazoned with the words Bite Me and other equally inane puns and slogans. The bit about wearing red to attract us was deliberately leaked out to the mundanes around ten or fifteen years ago. Word has it that the fellow who started the rumor just wanted to get the goths to start wearing some color. Others are mid-to-upscale establishments with predominantly mundane clientele. None of them turn up any good prospects tonight. I've been on the prowl for hours, the hunger growing inside of me until I can think of little else. I'm going to have to find someone soon, or I could be in trouble. There's nothing in the refrigerator back home, and the bars still close at 3 a.m. As I've said, I really don't like the bottled stuff, but I may have to just deal with it if my luck doesn't change in too much longer. It's a little after two, and I'm just leaving club number six for the evening when I hear the sound of a woman's scream somewhere nearby. Oh, God! Oh, God, someone help me, please! Her voice climbs higher as she grows more frantic, rising into a screech that would have sent a chill down my spine, if that were still possible. 
I take a second to pinpoint the sound. Somewhere behind me, around the corner, and down. Metamore City, by dint of overcrowding and cramped geography, is built like a layer cake, with four levels of magically suspended skyways sitting above the shadowed environs of the street, all joined together by massive skyscrapers that routinely exceed four hundred meters. Generally speaking, the farther you are from ground level, the wealthier and safer the neighborhood. The street itself is home to little, besides heavy industry and the desperately poor. The screams I'm hearing are coming from the first level of skyways, one layer below where I am now, which is about fifteen stories down, more or less. I run over to the edge of the skyway, roughly above where the screams are coming from, and hop up on the railing and look down. A narrow service alley leads back from a lonely street, past a couple of small shops, and into a cleft in the supporting skyscraper, where I can see a cluster of payphones and one of the lift tubes that connect the levels of the city. A young woman has been cornered in the alley by three unpleasant-looking gentlemen, and from the way she's moving, it looks like her right leg is injured. There's no way she could run, even if she had an opening. She's trying to ward them off, holding something out toward them at arm's length, shifting her focus among them every second or two, but they're gradually inching closer, and don't look like they have her best interests at heart. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what they are, of course. Fortunately, I've come prepared. I carefully remove my eight-centimeter heels and set them on the sidewalk. I don't really need them, and they wouldn't survive what I have in mind now anyway. Reaching into my pockets and pulling out two of my special personal items, I hop off the edge of the railing and fall in a straight shot down through the cleft in the skyscraper toward the alley below. This is one of those times when a great billowing coat like mine comes in handy. Not only does it give me a bit of steering control during my descent, but it makes for one hell of an entrance. I come down between the woman and her attackers, with a bit over a meter to spare on either side. I land on the balls of my feet and let myself fall into a kneeling posture, the force of the impact rattling through the skyway's hollow metal substructure. What the hell? One of the men growls. Another one manages nothing but a guttural snarl. I rise to a half-crouch as quickly as I can while maintaining an air of confidence and power, looking the attackers directly in the eye, one by one. As soon as each contact is made, I can feel his presence in my mind, his will testing itself against mine. One of them is stronger than the other two, but all of them eventually flinch, breaking the contact. The first contest is mine. Unfortunately, it will probably take more than that. I raise the polished wooden stake in my right hand, making sure they all get a good look at it. I keep my back to the girl with the crucifix. It would be rather embarrassing for her rescuer to end up cowed right in front of her. Instead, I keep my eyes on the villains in front of me, and keep my left fist closed and the arm stretched out behind me, as if to counterbalance the one holding the stake. I place my feet in a slightly widened stance ready to move in any direction. Good evening, children, I say, putting every ounce of the contempt I feel for them into the words. Looks like someone is having a bit too much fun with the humans tonight. The strong one snarls at me, eager to attack, but wary of the dangerous weapon in my hand. It won't kill him, 
but a solid blow to the heart will leave him as senseless and immobile as any corpse. Like the others, his face has grown feral and predatory, his brow wrinkling with rage, his eyes flashing yellow-green with undisguised bloodlust. "'Get out of here, bitch!' he snaps, his fully extended fangs interfering with his speech. "'Go find your own, human!' I pause half a moment for effect, as if considering it. "'No,' I say, evenly. "'This doesn't look like mutual consent to me. "'In any way, look at her.' "'I nod back over my shoulder. "'She couldn't possibly have enough blood to feed more than one of you.' "'My eyes narrow. "'Unless you were planning to bleed her dry.' "'What the hell do you care?' "'He sounds deeply frustrated. "'Have you forgotten the law of our queen?' You shall drink of the mortal, but you shall not kill unless I bid it. Who is your sire? He's dust, the strong one says, slapping his chest once. I am the master now. These two are mine. What a proud father you must be, I say, dryly. Still, it makes me happy. The self-described master cocks his head like a dog and stares at me, confused. It means no one's going to miss you when I send you straight to hell. Even as I say the words, I open my left hand, letting the wand fall from the sleeve of my coat until I can grasp the handle. Raising my arm in one smooth motion, far swifter than any human, I point it squarely at the master and shout, Yaja! A blast of flame erupts from the tip of the wand, heading safely away from me and into the face and chest of the thug. My kind tend to burn very fast when exposed to fire, especially if it's magic fire that has been blessed by the right people. The unlamented master disintegrates into a cloud of ash. I turn to the other two, who are cowering on the ground. Your sire is dead, I tell them. No other can now control you save for the queen alone. I suggest that you make better use of your freedom than he did, and respect the queen's laws. Otherwise, he will share his fate. My eyes narrow again. Go. They nearly fall over themselves to obey me, scrabbling to their feet and running away. They must be quite new to the change. They could have simply dissolved into mist form and floated away, if they had stopped to think about it. For a long moment, all that can be heard are their panicked footfalls and the quiet, terrified whimpers of the girl behind me. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. Come back for part two to hear what happens when Morgan meets the girl she just rescued. Virginia Woolf said, Literature is strewn with the wreckage of those who have minded beyond reason the opinion of others. I'd ask what you guys think of that idea, but I think that would be missing the point. But here's your weekly writing report. Over the last two weeks, I wrote 10,400 words over the course of 13.75 hours, 
for an average writing speed of 756 words per hour. I wrote on 13 out of 14 days, and I have gone 12 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of June, I wrote a total of 11,886 words over 20 days, averaging 594 words per day. That's my fourth lowest monthly total since I started keeping track of these things, but it was a huge improvement over May, when I only wrote on three days. I spent 18.25 hours writing in June, which tied with December 2015 for my fourth lowest amount of butt-in-chair time. I'm gradually working my way back up to my previous level of productivity, but I'm clearly not there yet. I've put in a lot of work lately on The Lost and the Least, working on it on nine days during the last two weeks. I'm now in chapter 56, and the manuscript is over 180,000 words. By comparison, Making the Cut finished out at 191,000 words, so this book is on track to be of a similar size, even though it's broken down into a lot more chapters. This week I also started working on some character development for my apocalyptic family saga, The Goetic Age. This is the trilogy I'm planning that's inspired by my short story, Tears Such as Angels Weep. If you want to hear more about this, you should check out my Patreon campaign. My patrons got a special bonus episode this week, where I shared some of the things I'm excited about in this new series. If you're a donor at the $3 a month level or higher, you also got a preview of Ben Clifford's next piece of bonus art, which is for the Metamore City story, Fire in the Sky. You can find all of that at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The link will be in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Hey Chris, my name is Ryan. I've been listening for about two years, and I just absolutely enjoy your stories. I just finished listening to part two of Welcome to Metaphor, which is actually my second time around in the last two years, because I started obviously with that, and I found your site. I love the foreshadowing that obviously now looking back was inserted into that story. It was great. The talking about obviously Kate's uh, magic use and the size and how they take care of their own, which came up with making cuts. It's just it's great. I love the way you have really interwoven all the stories together. And I'm just glad to be able to listen to everything. Thank you so much for what you do and keep up the great work. Thanks, Ryan. I like to think of Welcome to the City like the pilot episode of a television show. I didn't have my whole story arc figured out when I wrote it, but I knew some of the major places I wanted to go, and that story was my way of dropping those things in front of the reader and saying, hey, pay attention to this, it'll be important later. There are some of those in Making the Cut, too, and I can't wait until I get to start paying them off. Thanks for the call. Uh, hi, Mr. Lister, or Chris, I guess. This is Lisa. I just wanted to say that I love your work, and I first got to hear it at BaltCon of this past year, and it was awesome, and I love Rafael O'Leary. He's really cool. And so I've been going back and listening to the podcast, and I haven't quite caught up yet, but in Things Unseen, Chapter 12, or really in Episode 48, you mentioned the spiral method of writing, and I just wanted to say thank you, because that is exactly how I write, and no one's ever put a name to it before. So I'm really glad to have a name for it, and keep up the good work. I will keep listening, and I'm checking through like three or four episodes a day. So 
hopefully I'll be caught up soon. All right, keep it on the bright side. You're welcome, Lisa. And yeah, based on what I've read lately, it seems like a lot of writers are using the spiral method now. It's the method of choice for a lot of the most prolific writers out there, because it means you can get your fiction to market quickly, and then get started on writing the next story. So don't worry, you are not alone. And welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Stephen writes, Hey Chris, I was listening to To Walk in Shadow on Audible, and it made me want to know more. Has anyone written a story about being one of Ball's shadow mages? I'm totally loving the podcast. Keep up the great work. Hi, Stephen. No one has yet written a story about this new group of shadow mages that Ball negotiated for in To Walk in Shadow. The old Morinasi cult did appear in a couple of Metamore Keep stories back in the day, though. This is one of the long-term plot elements that I'm planting early, with the intention of using it later. See above, re-welcome to the city. My plans for the big story arc are in flux right now, so I don't want to get more detailed than that, but eventually we should see these shadow mages become important. Thanks for the question. Hey folks, one last announcement before I go. I have a lot of leftover books from the dealer's table at Balticon, so I've opened up my online store to offer signed copies. If you would like a signed Metamore City book and you didn't get a chance to buy one at Balticon, now is your chance. Just go to squareup.com slash store slash liminal hyphen corvid hyphen press, and you can place your order today. The link will be in the show notes. I already have a bunch of book mailers, so I'll be able to get these shipped out pretty fast after I get your order. Please note that the Square site can only accept orders that ship within the United States, because they only let me set one price for shipping and handling. If you live in another country and you want me to send you a book, send me an email at metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com and we can work something out. Remember, these books are only available until I sell out, so if you want one, place your order soon. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2002 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.